Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we're joined today by Josh Winterskill. Josh was introduced to me through uh, Christine Hemphill of Open Inclusion. So welcome, Josh. You're doing a, a bunch of stuff around the uh, the Open Inclusion Awards, simply Open Awards. Get it right, Neil. Um, but first off, you know, welcome to Access Chat and tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be working on what you're doing with Christine, but also, you know, some of the stuff in, in your background. Yeah. Hi, Neil, Deborah, Antonio. Really great to be on Access Chat. And, um, you know, thanks for thanks for allowing me to uh, take the time to share a bit about my kind of story and what I'm doing with Christine at Open Inclusion. So I'm 29 now. Uh, my background um, has historically been in uh, IT management and business. I started out in software development before that, before I went to university and then did an IT management degree. Graduated from uni back in 2015, which seems like a, sorry, it was 2000, yeah, 2015, which seems like a lifetime ago. Moved into cybersecurity for three years. I worked for Hewlett Packard Enterprise uh, in that space, uh, which is also now known as DXC Technology. And through my lived experience of being uh, uh, in a wheelchair, I've got spinal muscular atrophy. Um, it became quite apparent that um, as I got older with the condition deteriorating, travel had become increasingly more difficult. And we see a lot of bad press at the moment around aviation with people really struggling to fly with, you know, dignity and, you know, their, their, their rights really to travel. And in a lot of cases, we're seeing those rights breached, um, which has got, you know, got some really bad press recently um, in terms of the industry and, I realized that there was a, a gap in the market where wheelchair passengers or wheelchair users were being let down in terms of the way in which they were being treated, actually getting on and off aircraft from being physically lifted from their chairs into the aircraft. And I decided to um, come away after a holiday back in 2017. And I always say to, it's really weird because it started off with a pint of Corona and a book oh, that actually sparked the idea, which is quite cool, right? So for, for those advocate, uh, advocates, for those people that enjoy reading, one of the uh, people in industry around leadership, uh, Simon Sinek, um, has a fabulous book called Start With The Why. And that was the book that I was reading at the time. And it got me thinking about why I was doing what I was doing and in the corporate world. And I realized, actually, maybe I want to make more of an impact. And how can I make more of an impact outside of a corporate world? And that got me thinking about my lived experience. And I realized that there was this issue with the way I travel and I couldn't be the only person on the planet that was experiencing it and that really kick-started my idea of creating a product that would enable wheelchair users to better transfer from their wheelchair into an aircraft and it spiraled from there so I ended up uh, winning the UK Disabled Entrepreneurs Award back in 2018 which just so happened to be run by the founder of uh, one of Europe's largest budget airlines EasyJet so Sir Stelios and he decided to invest and he, he asked me, he goes, Josh, um, you know, would you, would you like some money to help get your business going? And I, of course, said yes. Um, and that allowed me to get enough funding to step away from the corporate world and really kickstart my career in, uh, in, in the entrepreneurial side of things. So that was kind of my route into entrepreneurship. And then with lockdown coming around, uh, with COVID coming around, sorry, um, being in the travel industry, that really impacted us massively. Um, and as an entrepreneur, you, you quite quickly learn to adapt. And one of the things that I did was, how do I 
pivot my business so I'm not completely heavily reliant on the travel industry or aviation for that matter. And so we, through COVID, we actually developed some more products, which was really exciting. And through that transition of changing the business, um, the open inclusion came about. So uh, that's where the tie with Christine came in. So effectively, Martin Sibley, uh, for many people who know Martin, um, was supporting Christine around mobility and dexterity. Me and Martin have the same condition. And with Martin spinning up his company purple goat agency which is now flying um i was i was the one that got poached to replace martin and i've been supporting christine now for a year and a half and recently picked up some more work for her in january this year um spinning up the simply open awards which christine has given me so again that's a very quick sort of five minutes or introduction of how i got to where i am today now I'll unmute myself. So excellent. So that I mean, that's a great potted tour, um, potted history, and I'm really interested that as someone that works in enterprise with different lived experience, but lived experience nonetheless, that you felt that you couldn't make a change, or maybe couldn't make that same kind of impact within enterprise. What was it about working in a, a really large corporate that, that made you feel that you would have more of an impact if you went outside to do it? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So I think when you start off as an intern and a graduate, you kind of feel very much like a cog in, a, in, a, in this kind of big wheel, so to speak. So in terms of the presence and impact that you're having, it feels very much this role of satisfying your line manager or your functional manager and a lot of it because my role wasn't necessarily client facing it was very much internal it was very hard to actually feel somewhat satisfied and I think I got myself into this place where I was comfortable and I wasn't really being challenged enough and it got me it just got me thinking about well where am I going to go next like you know, I could go into senior management, but is senior management again going to be client facing? And do I do I really want to be in kind of this cutthroat kind of corporate managerial role? Um, and I just I don't know. I felt like it's weird. OK, Neil. So when you come across a product or where you realize that there's people out there that are, that are having real world struggles and they haven't got solutions that give them a good quality of life it really does change your mindset and gives you a different perspective on just sitting behind a computer. And it doesn't mean that people sitting behind a computer aren't having real world impact because we know that's not, you know, we know that people are doing that, but I suppose that just kind of triggered me um, to just think slightly differently. Um, and sure, I mean, there's lots of risks being an entrepreneur and you know, there's a lots of safeguarding of being in, in kind of the corporate world, but I don't know. It just, yeah, when you when you see it, when you create something and you try and improve a person's life, it's a very different feeling versus doing a role internally within a company satisfying somebody else, if that makes sense. I do understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I, I, I can understand that the, the sort of facelessness of large organisations, you know, we where uh, Antonio and I worked for a, a very different, you know, similar organization, but slightly you know, French focus, because we worked for Athos, 
French French headquartered, but uh, and DXE being very much more US focused. But the sort of yes, coming as a graduate, you might feel like you're a cog in the wheel. I, I, what I would say is that I actually chose to stay. I've, I've run a couple of businesses, so I started I started up something. It wasn't in disability space. Um, but I chose to actually move from small and medium enterprises to go into a large one because I felt that it was an opportunity to leverage the the scale of that large yeah. business to, to make a difference. But I, I, I think the thing is you then have to be in the role to be able to do that. And so so I, I, I think that, that we've we've got similar aims but very different approaches to what we're trying to do here. So I'm, I'm, and I, yeah, and it's interesting because there's nothing to say that in 15 years time that I don't go back into the corporate world and potentially take on a role of that kind. Who knows? And, and it's interesting because when you I think when you're younger, those types of roles are kind of out of your reach in the early days. And for me, it was a, a more appropriate transition to make a, an impact, I suppose. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's all about perspective, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So I know Deborah's got a question, but I, I just following up on that, I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't do marvelously as an entrepreneur. I mean, I, I, I learned some great lessons. Um, I went to some great parties. My entrepreneurialism was around being, you know, in the music industry, having a record label and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, vinyl at that point was more niche than it is now because sales are back on the uptick. But... Um, but I, I, I think that yeah, I, I came to a large organisation. I was medium senior, so I was mid management, and I, over the period of time that it's become senior management and all the rest of it. And I've been lucky to work for an organisation that's allowed me the latitude to be the entrepreneur that <laughs> these things in an organisation. So I think it takes both. So, um, and, and yes, I, and I think that it also, organizations should be keen to bring in people with different experiences from different types of backgrounds at, at regular points and at different points in their career as well, because it enriches the, the sort of cognitive diversity and the, the diversity of experience that then helps you make better decisions and products and services and all the rest of it. I'll shut up now, Deborah, and, and hand over. Oh, no, no, because I agree too. Because one thing that we were seeing is that um, when we were bothering to meaningfully include people with disabilities, um, a lot of times I know here in the states we were always expecting you to be in the disability field, and and there were very talented people with lived experiences with disabilities that were like, I don't want to be in the disability field. I, I I'm I don't want you to throw me into a box, and so. I thought that it's just really good um, points that I thought you both were making because as Josh, and I think we should all do that. We should look at where are we in our lives and what does make the most sense. And I appreciate, Neil, that you are willing to stay with a big corporation and help lead it. But at the same time, we can make a lot of progress with being an entrepreneur. But I've been in, I've been both. I've been in senior, senior positions and large, what we always called corporate America, even though they were multinational. But I've also been an entrepreneur since 2000, and it is not for the faint of heart. The cash flow problems, two o'clock in the morning, worrying about how you can pay your payroll, 
it is not for the faint of heart, but once it gets in your blood, yeah. And I think Josh is experiencing We all are experiencing that. We're all entrepreneurs on this call, but I do think it's really important. And, and I remember I've talked to multiple people with disabilities that said, I'm not going in the field. No, I don't want to be labeled, but actually we sort of need you in the field. We need you telling us, we need Josh creating able move so that people using wheelchairs on airplanes can be more successful. And we're not treating people like they don't matter. So I, I think it, we we're all needed. And we, some, some of us are needed in universities and, you know, we're all needed in these different places. But I think it's also so powerful that we're digging into what does it mean to be a person with a disability? Does it just mean wheelchair users, people that are blind? Does it include neurodiverse people like Neil and I? Are we disabled enough to be part of the community? It, it's These are the times to really pull all of that stuff apart and really look at it and to look at what we've already contributed. But I just think it's very important right now with 80% of our community having to tell you they have a disability if they have the courage to do that for the 20% that are visible to really help, continue to help. Well, I think all of us need to help people be able to be proud of their lived experiences, no matter what their lived experiences are. So I, I really appreciate you know all the stuff you've been doing, Josh. But Tell, could you tell me more about how you came up with the design for the ABLE move? I mean, you, because what you did was you told us you won the award, a CEO saw you, and it moved forward. But I assume there's a little bit more to the story behind how you got there. <laughs> Sorry, Deborah, just repeat the question for me. I just had a drop of connection there. <clears throat> I, I was just wondering how the ABLE move, how, how did that get started? Mm-hmm. What's the story, how you started it? Why did you start it? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but you talked about winning the prize yeah. and the CEO. Mm-hmm. So I just want to know a little bit more about it because it's a great idea. Yeah, so I was on a flight to Tenerife in 2017. And I remember watching um, a gentleman. He was about six foot two. Um, I think he was tetraplegic. Um, he must have been best part of 15, 16 stone. And I'm watching four members of staff try and lift this poor chap into a window seat of an aircraft with no transferring equipment whatsoever. Um, His trousers were coming right up of his back. I could see two women at the front and two men behind trying to lift him. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm struggling, he's really, really struggling. And this can't continue. Uh, And so that for me i had bad experiences before but when you when you see it on other people it just doesn't sit right and it was at that point i realized whilst reading the book and seeing that that that's really what sparked me to then do something when i came home and what was really interesting i always say to people it's like when you when you put something into google and the search doesn't come back. It's like the odds of winning the lottery, but not winning the money, if that makes sense, because the odds are so slim. Um, and yeah, after a few Google searches, I realized that there was a, as a gap. And that's kind of what really sparked sparked it off, Deborah, um, to answer your question. Yeah, what a powerful story. Thank you. Thank you. I know Antonio has a question, but wow, that's powerful. So, uh, Josh, welcome. 
Uh, I think w- w- we know that over the last over the last uh, couple of months, airports and the industry aviation has been struggling. You know, mm-hmm. it's not difficult to to spend four or five hours in the airport. Uh, families with children, people with disabilities, basically uh, everyone. Uh, I know that uh, some progress has, me, has been made uh, in terms of, of supporting uh, people at, in, at mobility level within, within that industry. But uh, what have you seen lately that really concerns you? you know, because we know that many airports don't have the same resources that they used to have in the past. A lot of change of in terms of human resources within the airport industry. So I would like you to give us a kind of a status where you see the industry today and what things you feel that you, you were moving in the right direction and suddenly you went back and the things that you you feel you feel that they really need a kind of an urgent fix. It's a very very good question. It's a very very complex question to answer because there's lots of variables that impact. Um, the why the industry is the way that it is. But if we just take a step back and look at the industry before COVID, um, the industry was doing a, a lot of work. It was putting a lot of time um, and money in trying to improve accessibility. But the problems were there before COVID and there were still large problems that were happening affecting the experience of disabled passengers. And when you go through a crisis like COVID, of course, um, The industry goes into meltdown, their businesses, they're trying to survive. And unfortunately, what we saw was a lot of cuts being made to, we saw cabin crew, lots of good staff being lost. We saw lots of very good experienced special assistant staff being lost. And you can't replace that overnight once they're gone. It, it can sometimes take years to build that. And unfortunately, the way in which the industry operates, it has quite a high level of turnover of staff as well, which also doesn't help. And when we look at businesses going into survival mode, coupled with the fact that in particular in the UK, we've just left Brexit and recruitment has been quite a large issue. Um, Now we've left the European Union. We've also got issues with security, getting clearance for staff to be able to go airside. And there's lots of challenges, Antonio, that affect the airports from a, a logistical operational point of view that actually a lot of passengers don't recognize and they don't necessarily need to recognize it right they're a, they're a customer and they shouldn't need to know what's going on in the background but the point is is that there are lots of challenges where the industry have really struggled and i think there's also a, a large responsibility here on the government to ensure that you know passengers where where their rights can be badly affected like we're seeing in the aviation industry i think there should be more protection from the government to ensure that the services like this are protected. Um, you know, we see lots of money being spent by government to help bail airlines out and, and try and help them keep them afloat. But of course, you know, human rights is really important. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, disability has been neglected um, in, in the industry. And unfortunately, um, I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon. We're, we're nowhere near out of the woods. Um, the airlines are still trying to you know, get back on their feet, so to speak. Um, and I think it's going to be several years until we actually get to a point where we were before COVID. And like I said at the beginning, there were still lots of problems before COVID. Um, but what's what I do want to reiterate, though, is all of the people that work within the 
disability arena within the aviation industry all have hearts of gold and they're all trying to do the right thing. It's just the nature of the beast of the industry that really affects the outcome. And it's really sad because everyone's trying their hardest because they don't want bad experiences to happen. Um, but unfortunately, we need more security from government, but also better regulation improvements because a lot of the regulations that were written were actually written years and years ago, um, which aren't really fit for purpose for the world in which we kind of live today. So just following that, we seem to be, uh, this industry seems to going to also to a period of rebooting, of a period of restarting. Uh, with many executives changing, many new people coming. Where do you see opportunities to, to, to do better than where we were doing before while we are at this phase? Culture. It's, it's culture. I think it's the organizational culture um, of businesses that are employing staff in this space um, and getting that right. That's where we see a lot of the big gaps within staffing. You know, a lot of... A lot of the interaction that people get in airports around assistance is person to person and communication. And I think that's where the biggest improvement can be made, because when you get rid of staff that potentially have been there for years and years, you can argue that they're good at what they do. But also people that have been in a role for years and years get into very bad habits. <laughs> right. And so you get the opportunity to actually develop a new culture with new staff with better habits and I think that's probably the best place to start is culture um, because if you have the right attitude it drives the right mindset and with the right mindset you know we can treat people with the way that they should be treated. Excellent and um, um, we're going definitely like mining the topic around air travel and everything else. Um, I'm conscious that also We need to talk about the Simply Open Awards. But before you do, I mean, one, one thing that I'm really interested in is, you know, again, you, you alluded to it, there's sort of multiple moving parts here because, and multiple responsibilities across the chain because you've got, you've got the, you know, the airports and the management of the airports, but they, the, the, the staffing is usually through contracts. So the, then there's the, 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 the contract companies delivering those services also. And then you've got the handover point between that and the airline itself. And then you've got the responsibility of aircraft designers and fitters and, and so on as well, because actually how how the, the aircraft are designed impacts on that, you know, the experiences of travelers. And, and so I think that there's, there's so many elements to solving the problem that, I mean, you've come up with a, what is, is a solution, it's almost a hack, right? I mean, I, I, in, in the, because you, what you've done is created something for people to cope with an imperfect world. But if we were to design out, yes. Um, yes. you know, if we were to allow, um, you know, power chain users to be able to actually yep. go on planes, then, okay, we out of business but it would it would you probably come up with another product anyway um but, but the, the the problem that you just described would have disappeared if you had a wheelchair accessible toilet and a and a the removable seat in the front row of the aircraft 
yeah. would make so it, so it, insurmountable problems. But but what you're asking yes. for is the prime real estate of the airline, and, and and then it comes down to money. And this is and this is why I go back to culture because we should be doing things because it's the right thing to do. And but unfortunately, with the way businesses operate, they operate profit first in a lot of cases. Um, and so what we're actually what we actually need is people at the top of these organizations with a culture that's focused on accessibility where it's important in their goals and aspirations of their business where accessibility is considered at every stage of the business whether it where it's where it's research trying to identify new products or services and then when they identify a product or service and they want to build it out that they're including the right people with with accessibility in mind at every single stage of the journey. Don't include people with accessibility requirements at the point you think it's a good idea. Get them in the room to discuss what is actually needed rather than assuming, building, and then asking, because you're 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 missing that real crucial bit at the beginning. So I think that's kind of the, the bit to your point now. Yeah, excellent. So thank you for that. Um, and Let's talk a little bit about uh, the yes. Simply Open uh, Awards. Tell us about, and we, we alluded to hacks, and, and actually Simply Open Awards also has a, a big focus on hacks. So can you tell us a bit more about the awards? Yeah, so before I do that, just quickly to set, set open inclusions up in terms of what they do. Uh, so effectively, open inclusion is all about helping businesses create products and services that are more beautiful, inclusive and effective for everybody. And they have a, a community that are made up of people with uh, lived experience of um, disability or like the old age and all different backgrounds of neurodiversity, etc. And one of the uh, roles that Christine has asked me to do is bring into the business uh, these these uh, these awards called the Simply Open Awards. Now these started. We're not the originators actually of these awards. They they started in, in India back in 2019 by an organisation called Enable India, and they realised that in India, being um, uh, a, a low to middle income country, they realised that actually people in the outreach communities. Um, that people were having to come up with hacks to overcome day-to-day barriers that they faced because in India, healthcare isn't perhaps, say, as sophisticated as what it might be here in the UK. And so people are really having to think about frugal innovation um, and come up with solutions or hacks that really help them, you know, get around the home. It might be go to work or getting out and about. And they had a really good success over the last two years. And what they've done is, through that success, they've decided to bring in partners from around the world to really take the concept of asking people to share by recording their hacks and submitting it into the into the awards. And so what's happening now is through Enable India, they've reached out to various companies uh, and through the, the work with Christina Open and um, uh, their connections with Enable India, we've decided to take on the Simply Open Awards for uh, it's six countries so we've got the uk Ireland, the us canada and australia and new zealand and so what we're trying to effectively ask people to do is if you have a life hack that's helped you overcome barriers around you or that they might help other people then we want you to record what that hack might be 
uh, and submit it into the Simply Open Awards. And you get the opportunity to win some money. But the most important thing about the awards is being able to share your hack with somebody else around the world that would benefit from um, from that solution. So to give an example, uh, I have um, a, a setup here at home, which is a, it's a metal bar. It goes along the ceiling. It's hooked by two screws and I've attached a stretchy band around it and I put it over my arms or over my legs and it allows me to do my exercises at home, which saves me having to go to the gym where if you go into the gym, a lot of the equipment in the gym is inaccessible, right? And so why pay a gym membership to go and use equipment that you can't really use? Let's do it at home. Um, and again, it was a very, very simple hack that allows me to do exercise at home. And we're seeing lots of other in innovations. So uh, we've got a, a particular person who has adapted their manual wheelchair to hook all of their suitcase, their bags and everything uh, onto the back of their chair. So they can basically be hands free and push their chair. We have seen, um, I've seen a guy adapt a 3D um doll is basically he 3d printed a uh, a dog dispenser so that a, a treat dispenser for his dog which he hooked up to his wheelchair with a button right a very simple 3d printed dog dispenser that is attached to his chair to feed his dogs independently and there's lots of other examples i could talk for, for hours on examples and it's that's really the essence of the things we're trying to capture about what people are doing to improve their day-to-day -day life so we're spanning those six countries. We've got various categories, which ranges from education, communication, getting out and about, um, employment and advocacy and daily health and well-being. So as long as your solution or hack um, comes under one of those five categories, then we, we really want you to apply. I would also like to say that um, we also at Billion Strong are part of the Discovery Awards, and we're bringing our 90 countries to it. So 